Come. Commander, yes, please, come in. Welcome to Bajor. It's been a long time, Captain. We met before. Yes, sir. We met in battle. I was on the Saratoga at Wolf 359. Well, hello and welcome to Terok Noir. My name is Joe and I'm here with my brother Matthew and together we are recapping each episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine from Emissary to What You Leave Behind. Before we get into our initial thoughts on the episode, we would like to take a few minutes to introduce who we are as well as provide context for this new Trek show on the heels of The Next Generation. So. Uh, by way of introduction of who Matthew and I are, I'm going to turn it over to Matthew, uh, just to introduce yourself and your history with Star Trek. Yeah, my name is Matthew, and like Joe, we grew up um, watching Star Trek at an early age. Um, very young, like five, six, seven, when we started watching Star Trek. So it's been in the blood for a long time. It started off, we didn't have cable, so we had other people tape star trek for us on vhs and we wait once a week we get the vhs tape that had the next gen episode from the week before and we would watch that all the time like especially towards the latter seasons like being caught up live and then deep space nine comes on and deep space nine was exciting because it's more star trek which is great bring on the content um, also, it was a black captain, even though he wasn't really a captain at the beginning because it's a black captain. Well, and, you know, <laughs> and there's a you know a little a little black boy on the show. There's like so there's a lot a lot to sort of identify with at the beginning. Plus, rather than it being um, the you know like high minded liberal opera attending violin concert having shakespeare holodecking next generation it was coffee drinking gambling dark corners uh deep space nine so it was a little like the show itself felt a little different and it was cool to get you know a little flavor of both of those at the same time yeah, and uh, when we get to kind of talking about the context of the show, we'll highlight some of those differences between DS9 and TNG. But, you know, for for us watching it, as Matthew said, uh, we were watching it live when it came out. So that can <laughs> give away our age, I guess. Um, but I distinctly remember watching Deep Space Nine. Um, you know, we our friends would record the episodes on VHS tapes, like Matthew said, but it was such, it was, a, it was right at that right age in my life where it was really sticking, you know? Um, <clears throat> and it helped Star inform. Trek. Star Sorry. Trek Next Generation a little bit before your time. Thanks, buddy. Uh, stay tuned to our podcast. You'll hear Matthew say that a thousand more times. Um <laughs> But it definitely helped inform my lifelong love of uh, science fiction, anything set in space, um, but also this being a show that involved and revolved around so many different 
types of themes such as religion, class, uh, oppression, and doing it in such a way within the framework of Star Trek was such a new experience for me and you know made me fall in love with it from the beginning. And Matthew and I and Matthew's wife, Betsy, we were doing our own individual independent rewatches of Deep Space Nine during COVID, as many others were. And, you know, we would be constantly texting each other back and forth, you know, not just reminiscing about how we enjoy these episodes when we were younger, and then looking at them from our framework now, both in terms of the present day where we are, where we are in our personal political beliefs and religious beliefs and so on and so forth, it became such a regular back and forth conversation that we decided that we wanted to do a much more long form conversation by recording this podcast so that we can further go deeper into each individual episode uh, and then the series as a whole. We looked around and noticed that there were very few podcasts out there. Nobody had podcasts going. Nobody was starting a new podcast. We had to step into the break and fill the space is what we thought. You know, people don't have their voices out there. We needed to stand up and really, you know, step into this place. The good thing is, is that before we came along, there's not a single other podcast on the planet, period. And so we wanted to make sure that uh, we could be that single podcast for all possible people listening, wanting to listen we, to a podcast. We saw a market inefficiency and thought, you know, this is where media is going. Yes. What you'll have to understand about us is that we're we're some smart, you know, we're smart, smart people out here, you know, really trying to figure trendsetters, if you will. Yeah. You yeah. know, we're really trying to trying to be a galaxy ahead. Exactly. So, you know, I'm glad that you're tuning into this, the single podcast in existence. Uh, and we hope you enjoy it. And also, of course, enjoy our touch of sarcasm along the way. So what to expect from the podcast? Uh, we're going to be doing frank, honest discussions about Deep Space Nine and the characters, both the good and the bad. Uh, as we had said, we've been watching Star Trek since we were kids. This is something that we love. We have such a soft spot in our hearts for Star Trek shows, all the characters and, you know, the world of Star Trek. As such, we're going to be brutally fucking honest about these different characters. It comes from a place of love, but we will be constantly shitting on Odo being an asshole cop. So just get ready for it. Um, in addition to things to get ready for, uh, we, we have seen all of Deep Space Nine. And we talk about these episodes as someone that has seen all of Deep Space Nine. So if you're wanting a spoiler-free rewatch recap podcast of Deep Space Nine, this is not it. Uh, spoilers lurk around every corner, just like Garrick on Empok Nor. That's a spoiler. See? Um, today's we're episode... Not, we're not going to be dicks about it. Like, no. You know, like, we're not going to, like, spoil, spoil things. Just things that, you know, we, we might mention something that happens five seasons from now, that if you're watching along with us, there's a hundred episodes not a chance that you remember or that it spoils. It's just things that happen. We'll right. try to stay as much in the present as possible, but it could come up. You never know. But like, for example, when the Cardassians are talking about Durinium shadows, we're going to bring up the fact that that came back 
an illusion of Duridium shadows in season four, episode one, when Worf shows up and it's like the best fucking episode of all time. Anyways, stuff oh like that. Oh my God, that's so many spoilers. Okay. All right. So uh, just to give you an idea of today's episode, it will be a little bit longer than the average episode because we've spent this time introducing ourselves, the show, and then uh, kind of giving context on DS9 before we get into the rest of the podcast. So uh, we try to have our episodes be around an hour, you know, around 60 minutes. So uh, so you can kind of be prepared for that for the next episode. But uh, before we get further in, uh, let's provide a little bit of context for Deep Space Nine as a show. Uh, it aired on January 3rd, 1993. This was in the middle of The Next Generation Season 6. Uh, Paramount came to the producers and were like, hey, we want a new Trek show to come right at the end of TNG and then continue airing after we have TNG because they didn't want to have an overlap, right? Um and they came to the producers with the charge of if the original series of Next Generation is um, the wagon to the stars, uh, we want this show to be Rifleman. Uh, so it's a man and his son living together in a frontier town. Uh, Michael Pillar uh, was quoted as saying, we didn't want to do the same thing again. We didn't want to have another series of shows about space travel. We felt that there was an opportunity to really look deeper, more closely at the working of the Federation and the Star Trek universe by standing still and by putting people on a space station where they would be forced to confront the kind of issues that people in spaceships are not forced to confront. Uh, he continues to say, it's like the difference between a one night stand and a marriage. On Deep Space Nine, whatever you decide has consequences the following week. So it's about taking responsibility for your decisions, the consequences of your actions. So definitely one of the things that makes this stand out is that even from the beginning, there was a certain nature of serialization compared to the original series and Next Generation, which were much more episodic. And Deep Space Nine is widely known and remembered as being a much more serialized Trek show before shows like uh, Discovery came out where something would happen in one episode and would continue on for another set of episodes that there would be episode story arcs. And so even at the beginning of Emissary, the different things that happen, the tension with the Cardassians, the introduction of the wormhole and the prophets, and Cisco being an emissary, that has a natural continuation that continues throughout each season of the series. And similarly, or contrasting to Picard's relationship with Q in Encounter at Farpoint at the beginning of Next Generation, that trial starts in this first episode, but it really doesn't come into play again until the end of TNG, whereas the events of this episode, Emissary, do uh, resonate and uh, ripple out uh, throughout the rest of the series. Uh, another quote and another aspect of this show being a little bit different is they were breaking away from Gene Roddenberry's rule to avoid conflict among 24th century human characters. Uh, Michael Pillar, Pillar again says, we really set out to create conflict on every level of this show. 
conflict between the Federation and Bajor, conflict between Starfleet and the environment in the space station that was not particularly comfortable for humans, conflict with the religious aspects of the Bajoran people, conflict with the Cardassians and the beings our characters would encounter on the other side of the wormhole, conflict between us and the humanist values of Gene Roddenberry's futuristic humans. All these things were to make life on this space station challenging. Yeah, no, it definitely feels like a different Star Trek show. Um, you know, growing up, like, obviously, like, we didn't catch the original series going on. We caught the movies, but we would go back. You know, I remember us going to the library, watching old episodes, also on VHS, you know, like, just working these things. And between that, which there wasn't conflict in Gene Roddenberry's vision, but there were skirts. And well. Yes. There could have there could have been some conflict. The the women just kind of had to accept what was going on. Um, you know, but then you know, moving to TNG, it's another thing where the conflict really did occur between the humans and the other species. Like there were conflicts with Worf and other people, um, but it really didn't get into it amongst the crew in the in that same way. Like there were little things, but never it never really blew up. This show feels different like in all the ways that you mentioned um but especially in this way like it's not nearly as polished no one no one's nearly as polished and clean as they are in next gen yeah so let's uh let's get into the episode and we'll introduce the new characters uh again today we are talking about season one episode one emissary the story was by rick berman and michael pillar the teleplay by michael pillar and it was directed by David Carson. The episode summary is Commander Sisko and a Starfleet crew must work together with the Bajorans aboard Station Deep Space Nine to protect it from imminent Cardassian attack. However, Sisko's mission is turned on its head when a new wormhole is discovered linking the Alpha and Gamma Quadrants. So let's get into uh, some of the new characters before we talk uh, more in depth about the story and about Sisko specifically. Um, so one of the first characters that we, uh, are greeted by is actually a recurring character from the next generation. So Miles O'Brien moves from the next generation over to deep space nine in part to have some continuity, uh, so that viewers would recognize someone from another show. Uh, also that the producers, uh, saw, uh, Cole Meany as too good of an actor to just be relegated to background parts hold, hold up hold up. i'm just reading what they said okay do uh, wait you say too good of an actor do you want me to pull out the quote <laughs> i'm just saying lying, over, been every, lying over lying over everything i love it he uh-huh. had too much of a good accent to be washed over like that that is true i think is what it was <laughs> Uh, give me a second and I'll pull out the quote. Um, yeah. Uh, so I started using, this is, I believe this is Michael Pillar. Uh, I started using the character of O'Brien almost from the day that I got to the next generation. I gave him a little scene, yada, 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 yada. Um, where is it? I swear that they said something about him being a good actor. (laughs) <laughs> that had to be manifested. That's not that is not okay, a real listen. thing to happen. 
he definitely had his moments anytime that they were doing a uh o'brien must suffer episode he was doing his thing and his thing is not good acting his thing okay his thing is good accenting is what his thing is it is good accenting so let's Listen, talk hey, about two like other o- aspects i like o'brien too i'm just saying you know that's not what we're here for we're watching yes. a star trek show this good acting is not what we're here for yeah, uh, Star Trek is very much like, let's focus on one or two good actors and then whatever with the rest. And then vibes, baby. Vibes. And this one, it's Irish vibes. Um, uh, originally, after they kind of, before they figured out the O'Brien aspects where O'Brien is very much the working man, right? Mm-hmm. When they brought Bashir in, they were initially thinking, oh, Bashir could be like the working Englishman, right? And then they're like, well, we already have a working Irishman, <laughs> so we can't have that. So then they made Bashir a little bit more prim and proper uh, while being a dick. Anyways, we'll get to it in a second. But part of the benefit of having O'Brien in this show is his history with the Cardassians or the Cardies, as he is often one to say. Yeesh. And yeesh, well, you know, what can you do? Um, but having that uh, tension built in is one of those things where you know the producers of the show were focused on creating as much conflict as possible so having that built-in conflict with o'brien and the cardassians worked out really really well for for this show um yeah and we do get to spend a lot more time with O'Brien as the series goes along. Several O'Briens, but we'll get to that later. Um, I mentioned Bashir. So uh, one of the quotes uh, from the producers was, we decided to create a flawed character, someone who was young and wet behind the ears, who was a little full of himself, a little arrogant, and who had a lot to learn. He'd have to be brought down to size in order to grow. And we wrote him as kind of a jerk for much of that first season. And he was a jerk. And like, also like constantly trying to win over Dax. That's a very nice way of saying that. Win over Dax. Here's the thing. Bashir was like, if Deep Space Nine gets into a little bit of Federation imperialism, which it does, um, and sort of critiques that a bit, maybe unintentionally sometimes. Bashir is the perfect representation of British Empire guy who, like, you know, he you can almost imagine him with those big fucking weird pantaloons <laughs> and a hat just down in, like, Kenya or something, just being, like, just talking about the savages and how excited in the wilderness. <laughs> yeah, how excited he is to see the savages in the wilderness and you know, this is yeah. a great opportunity for him. And this is going to like bring his family name some honor. And, you know, they're going to end up getting stake in like a rubber f- company or something like that. Yeah. Like, it's, it's the British. Perfect. Oh, look at this lovely wilderness land we found. But this, so, so he's like, and he, it, it builds a little bit. This time he was a little bumbly when he came, like, you know, right. My man gets yeah. out of the, the ship and ends up asking the, the hot girl out in front of like three people, you know, like, like you just, had that entire ship mess. ride. And he How, ends up- <laughs> like you were on that freaking Oberth class ship for a long ass time, and you couldn't <laughs> find any other time to ask her out except for right in front of your commanding officer. He ends up like Wiley Coyote just over a cliff, like, well, <laughs> shit. I guess, I guess this is what's happening right now, uh, you know. Yeah. And just feebly, poorly, just real tough, you know, 
maybe we could get dinner or drink or uh, whatever. Uh, like r- immediately you have Dax like Ugh, this child Cisco <laughs> like Ugh, this child he pisses off Kira immediately like dude this is my home you're calling this a wilderness and you're so like giddy about it but like this is my home dude like he like immediately is just pissing off everybody pissing off everybody because he comes from the empire where like if he wanted he could have stayed and like you know done tea time in polo or whatever it is but he decided that he was bored and he wanted to get some excitement you know and was going out to the front just like again real british empire stuff but this but his character like it moves on and it's perfect british of just like pretentious you know, thinking that he's smarter than everyone, which we'll get into later. Well, spoilers, yes. you know, um, and, but also like a little bit charming. Oh, yeah. I mean, for sure. He definitely has charm. And especially like when he's doing his uh, James Bond holodeck thing that for copyright reasons, they never could do again. <laughs> uh, but like he's definitely very charming um it's broccoli family lawyers showed up they were like hello they're like not dog um (laughs) you're not going to get famka johnson and you're also not going to get deep space nine just you're not getting jack or uh you're not getting james bond you're not getting jack shit yeah no mgm really put the put the knee on paramount's neck right there honestly um speaking of knees on people's necks let's talk about odo um uh the favorite fascist (laughs) favorite fascist uh so again from the producers we knew that we needed some kind of data spock character who looks at the world from the outside in so you know following along with the rifleman the frontier town odo is very much the sheriff of the town um the no-nonsense sheriff that is just like very quick to dole out ridiculous amounts of punishment um including on children and uh yeah i mean what do we think about odo as a character being introduced i think that for me when i was a kid i've always been uh fascinated and um uh transfixed uh pun intended with the concept of characters who are able to shapeshift and uh you know become something that they're uh, a different you know, become a different person in a different body, whatever. Uh, you know, he turns into animals throughout the show, stuff like that. Like that was something that um, as a kid, I wasn't as attuned to his fascistic streak. Uh, I was just like, oh, cool. He's a bird now. Um, so like there was definitely a lot as a kid that I enjoyed about him. And then as an adult, it's just like, oh. <laughs> Odo suffered the most on rewatch, I think for sure. Oh, a hundred percent like like even at the time i'm like uh this man's never once read like the rule book you know what i mean like this man this dude's a constable but he's never he has no idea what any like of the prescribed punishments are you know jail time like he's just doing his thing however he sees fit in whatever way he wants and as we'll see like moving forward in these episodes this dude does not care about privacy. No. Like th- when you, you want to talk about like a surveillance state, this dude might be like the chair in your room. He's not, <laughs> this man, he's not get, like, <laughs> like this is supposed to be the 24th century or whatever. But in 1993, you had to get a warrant for that shit. You know what I mean? Like with, 
like instead the rules have gone the opposite way to you know surveillance state which also feels different in watching this over the pandemic you know Mm. surveillance state stuff feels different in the 2020s than it did in the 1990s you know like for sure you started having some of that like surveillance paranoia was definitely there especially as you got to the late 90s and like into like enemy of the state stuff or whatever but um like at this point it's so ubiquitous and odo is the manifestation of the surveillance state Mm -hmm. yeah uh yeah odo wonderful character we'll have plenty of things to say about him as the as the series continues abolish the police a cab fuck the cops a cab includes odo a cab includes odo it does yeah actually like in terms of like the list of like a cab who first odo is very very high on that list Um, no flush that goo yeah uh just leave him sitting out for 18 hours he'll be fine (laughs) uh um, look like a cow patty (laughs) so let's talk about his primary antagonist which is quark uh the bartender who is a constant thorn in the side of law and order but who has a sense of humor about it um you know quark is to be fair all the characters are slightly different than they are uh in this first episode than they will be the rest of the season and the rest of the series but that's who quark is is pretty much there in this episode and um you know it's very much frontier town there's a bartender sometimes stuff happens in bars sometimes there's fights all that kind of stuff you have bar regulars like morn who's just such a chatty kathy um but quirk was a fun character because it is you know the ferengi were introduced in next generation as (laughs) intending to be like a klingon level threat uh to the federation um, but then the first few episodes, which Armin Shimmerman, who plays Quark, uh, the first few episodes that featured Frankie, people were just like, look at these little guys. Look at those silly little people. And no one was taking them seriously as a threat, but very much just a um, untrustworthy, uh, materialistic, um, you know, kind of soft evil villain you know um and so having a a ferengi on as a main cast member on a star trek show uh based on what we see of ferengi in the next generation was a fun addition and personally i like a lot of the quark storylines throughout the series um you know he does some fun things there's definitely some conversations about um how trek views capitalists and very much uh we're not one of those uh kind of capitalists and that will definitely come up several times uh as it comes up a lot but one of the things that's really interesting to me um the quark odo relationship is there's so many great pairings on this show um you know bashir o'brien bashir garrick um you know cisco dax when they go there um but but odo quark is one of the one of the other great duos on the show and it really does interestingly get into the the dynamic of capitalism and the state and especially capitalism and law enforcement the way that like this is a this is a hardcore stone cold capitalist which means he's doing shady shit all the time 
because you know that's that's the way it works but they never shut down the shady shit Mm -hmm. they posture you know like Mm -hmm. odo's always posturing always whatever but odo's odo never over you know seven seasons and seasons and like years before this he never puts quark away he never like shuts him down he never does any of this stuff it's always threats and they always are working together because mm-hmm. their interests are actually aligned and they're not like they're only play antagonists you know they're not they're yeah. not real antagonists towards each other yeah i mean even in this episode where odo and quark are working side by side uh alongside kira o'brien and everyone else to kind of distract the cardassians and dispatch them for a while like that is the beginning of their sometimes we're working together kind of thing sure it was in a larger plot that involved other people but sometimes it's just quark and odo working directly together uh for their own individual and combined gains and interests but it's this is um like it's odo's out here trying to catch petty criminals like thieves and whatever it's the it's just a classic like hey your employer might steal like employers in california are stealing 30 billion dollars a day in wage theft but if you stole you know something from work you're going to end up in jail you know but the employers are never like there's not a chance of them ever sniffing prison you know what i mean like and it's a similar thing here where like Quark is out here defrauding people all the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And it's like institutional fraud where it's like, hey, uh, you know, these gambling things are weighted. Even Kira at one point is like, hey, you're not allowed to like cheat your client customers all the time. You can only cheat them some of the time, you know? And so like they're, they're willing to let him do whatever as long as, you know, just like keep it keep it to like a level that we can all get away with here so that like i'm not going to get too much pressure otherwise you do whatever you want meanwhile odo's out here like fucking batman beating up street criminals you know what i mean and like letting these yeah letting these guys go priorities my friend priorities um so let's get to uh one of the other central characters and one of the central pairings on the show which is dax um, you know, the relationship with Dax and Cisco is such a central relationship to the show throughout the series. And, you know, you've got this uh, character, Atril, uh, who will kind of talk about the differences in uh, design and appearance uh, as we see them originally in The Next Generation, first introduced, uh, and then here again as a, a series regular on Deep Space Nine. But a character like Jadzia Dax, who has not just hundreds of years of experience and knowledge and history, but most importantly, decades uh, or years of experience and history uh, with Cisco. And so it's not just like, you know, for Ben, it's like, oh, yeah, I have a friend at work now, but it's someone who was a confidant, who was a mentor for him and whatnot. And so you know, bringing that character back, but in a different, different body, a different form, a different uh, personality, it represents a lot of fun uh, storytelling devices. And it was, you know, the producers intended it as a troll character would provide great potential for dichotomy and paradox. Yeah, no, it's, Dax is one of my favorite characters growing up. 
Very big, very big fan of Dax. At what age? <laughs> uh, preteen to early teen. Yep. Okay. Preteen. It's just yep. nice to get like a timeline for <laughs> you know for this. I mean, uh, so DS Nine starts ninety three, so I'm like eight. You know. Yeah. And just just really like discovering who I am and and throughout the like. course of the series. <laughs> Over the course of the series, yeah. Uh-huh. You know, at the beginning, yeah. you're like, oh, this is intriguing, and then you know, then towards the middle and the end, you're like. Yep, this is what I like. And you end up having the the reaction that Cisco did, where he was like, God damn. <laughs> that was like such a weird, like, woo-wee. <laughs> <laughs> like I appreciate that, like he's acknowledging. It's like, whoo, this is gonna this is gonna take a little time to get used to. Like, I know that we're just friends, but damn. Yeah. I, I don't think it's that been, kind it's of been, is... it's been three years, you know. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that scene would have happened uh in a in a modern day show. See, um but I, that was I very much it. I of its time it. like come on uh well like, i mean so you're especially like we saw what curzon looked like on that table wow yeah. you know what i'm saying so like this is curzon in your mind and curzon shows up and you're like god damn you know like i, mean, I don't know it, what you're supposed to say and yeah you just acknowledging it because you're you know you're, you're close like that like you you spent you know 20 years like real close with this i mean person. you're like hey listen yeah I'm just like we're just, we're we're friends, you know. Like he ends up taking like the cool flip where he ends up becoming kind of a mentor to right. her, yeah, and like all that stuff. But in between, from then to now, there's this moment yeah. where I'm seeing what I'm seeing. I mean, listen, the number of friends that uh, upon me telling them that I started hormones, the amount of friends who are have expressed very specific, clear interest, intent, and excitement about appreciating uh, additions to my body. Uh, they're very much the Cisco in this situation, <laughs> very much the Dax. So I understand it. Uh, it is, I, I can definitely pull from personal life experiences. Um, also, it definitely does carry on the tradition of star trek being very strangely pervy and sexual um this is gene roddenberry's vision come to life is uh it's a horny show yeah you're in space the you know the vibrations of those ships just sitting there in space you know they got they got the inertial dampers but the hum some but that hum mm, (laughs) that thing's moving through your body like i don't know what you're supposed to do out there plus you know it's uh it's like summer camp vibes where you're like hey it's just us on this you know on this ship in space well you know, you're real you're really feeling like your last people on earth type vibes uh i think that the next character introduced would hear your this is summer camp vibes and be like hey this is my home buddy this is my home okay <laughs> hold on now i don't want to make this person upset all okay right? so i'm not trying i'm not trying to get in the bad side you know, of this character because later this character becomes just kind of goofy and weird and hardly recognizable to this to episode one character. What? This episode one character, I'm not trying to mess with. So, I mean, there are some uh, changes to Major Kara throughout the series that are for the better, namely hair. I really do not like Major Kara's hair in this episode because it was very clear that they were like, we really, really wanted to get Ro Lauren on this show but michelle forbes was like no nah, i want to do movies and they're like okay so we're gonna have to get a different version of Rolaren. and they're like let's just take Rolaren's wig and put it on 
uh, Nunaa Visitor. And that's basically what they did. And it just did not look good. And it's very much the continuing the tradition of like, oh, it's a new species from a new planet. Everyone has the same haircut on this planet for whatever reason. The Romulan bowl cut. The Romulans, the Vulcans, and uh, and now Bajorans. Um, but so Major Kira is introduced. She is uh, the first in command or second in command, whatever. First officer um, on Deep Space Nine, uh, the military, uh, co- not correspondent, that's not the right word. But, you know, the uh, attache. attache, thank you, um, for Bajor on the station. And, you know, immediately there is that uh, resistance, uh, pun intended, I suppose, uh, to Cisco and to the Federation. Because, like, in her words, she's like, hey, we just kicked out these other guys that had been occupying us for 60 years. What does Bajor do next? They bring in the Federation to occupy us yet again. And so she is naturally, very understandably, pissed off. She's like, fuck this bullshit. And so, I I mean, I enjoy a lot of Kira across the series. She has a, she makes a lot of questionable decisions. Uh, Sometimes hair later seasons, she gets like a Karen haircut at some point. Uh, Her personal relationships are problematic for sure. Um, but in terms of like the introduction of a character who has spent her entire life resisting the Cardassians and is just has this fight in her, you know, it was just it was a very uh, different kind of character that we've seen uh, on Star Trek as like a, a leading character so far. Yeah, no, I I really liked the idea that we had. A terrorist, you know, like running, literally, like running a Starfleet, um, you know, station. Like, it's something very different from the clean cut, proper, you know, you're going through the academy type leader that they'd had in the past. You know, where like she's really out here trying to be kind of a wild card. Um, at the beginning, you know, like we said, they kind of tamed the character a little bit. Um, they would randomly like bring back some of these elements, but for the most part, they pretty they mellowed her out quite a bit. Um, but this first season, she is out here like really not taking any shit. She's still in the fight, you know. Yeah. She, like she's very much still in that in in the mentality of we're still fighting right now. Um, and yeah, she doesn't take any shit. And this goes to you know again that that question of imperialism where the Federation always kind of stands for, um, you know, America, the West, you know, NATO type, you know, image of a collection of Western countries that are really, they just want the best for everyone. And they're just trying Mm -hmm. to like learn and explore and trade resources. Um, But you find that the, the places where they go are like, Hey, we might, might not actually be, you know, like, when you get to hear from the people that they end up bringing into the Federation, you find, oh no, some people are like, you're really taking advantage of us and you're using our resources and we're giving a lot more than, than we're getting, mm-hmm. you know, in this relationship. And that's certainly, you know, one of the, one of the things with, you know, Bejor and the will they, won't they of joining the Federation over the course of the series. They get into that quite a bit. 
Yeah. So let's uh, let's kind of shift gears and let's talk um, about Cisco uh, relating to that point and really the story of of the episode. So uh, every books. Let's go. Let's go. I don't know. Why I did that voice. Um, <laughs> I don't know. But I don't know why. Avery I don't know Brooks why did a number of his voices in the series. Hey. So that kind of works. I don't know why um, I did what I did either. We're just all confused out here. Truly. So again, from the producers, uh, quoting, you want to take your leading man on a quest where he has to overcome personal issues as well as whatever space stuff, which I love space stuff happens to be out there. The idea of a man who is broken and who begins to repair himself is always a great beginning for drama. And the thought of putting our new hero in direct conflict with Picard because he blames him for the death of a family member just made us grin. They made the producers grin. It was a wonderful way to introduce this character, destroying all the viewers' expectations that Picard would come on and slap our new hero on the back and say, good luck. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about Cisco and his uh, relationship to Starfleet. Um, you know, and uh, specifically his task of making sure that he clears out all of the obstacles for Bajor to uh, to be you know to be welcomed into uh, into the Federation. So we first see Cisco three years prior during the Battle of Wolf Three Five Nine, where uh, Locutus is fucking shut up. Uh, he is destroying people left and right. Uh, he kills. He essentially kills uh jennifer cisco uh uh ben's ben's wife and we an, immediately see this character that uh has a wound a very very deeply cut wound that is still open throughout this entire episode and uh in many ways through the series and uh, it is it is a driving force for him. And where we find him at the beginning of the episode, when we get to present time, he's like, you know what? This Starfleet shit is, uh, is some bullshit. And I kind of want out. And we don't have many shows that have the leading man wanting to get out before he even walks in the door. Yeah, no, it was a really great way of opening... Um, you know, it pulls onto probably at that point the the most popular episodes of Star Trek Next Generation were the Lacutus episodes. You know, like that was big time. The Borg were by far the best villain that they come around. It was like it was a lot, and so this was a really smart way of doing the show. You know, some of this, like you know, Lacutus was responsible for what he was responsible for but you didn't need Lacutus. you didn't need picard to to blast through that fleet of busted ass old ass ships that they were sending well, that is true <laughs> like like what are we doing here guys whatever it's funny whatever earth is in trouble they're always like yo we got like three freighters back here <laughs> it's just like the enterprise yeah. has to come save us or somebody does because like Yo, what is uh what are these junkers doing trying to like defend them? That that is that's a question that I've always had in Star Trek, where it's like, yeah, Earth is uh, you know, the headquarters of the Federation. Oh, cool. So it's very heavily guarded, right? 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 Oh, you've you've got these little like fighter planes or whatever, like you got like X-wings, you know, defending <laughs> that thing. Like it's 
like what are we doing here y'all? you've got you know? you've got the miranda class ship that's literally been around since the original series since <laughs> the movies and it's like, like what's, it's, it's 100 years Con, old it's fine it's fine. didn't Khan have one of these ships yeah. like what are we doing right now when yeah. they were wearing the foldover uniforms yeah so it's like all right you know like i'd have beef with picard too but at the same time you know they could have they could have sent anybody in a board cube and they would have had just as much success but um you know it was really interesting I think first I want to say like you've never seen someone interact with Picard that way mm-hmm. where just like like you you always see everybody give him just the utmost respect and he is just a le- like a legendary captain right mm-hmm. and here Cisco is like yo what's up you killed my wife like, i'm not really <laughs> straight with immediately you know immediately I mean? he's like hey so it's you it's like so you're uh, the have, son of the bitch that killed my wife <laughs> have we met before yeah when battle you, <laughs> when you killed my wife you piece of shit <laughs> you know, it's like like okay so like immediately you see cisco to be someone who's wounded but you also see cisco to be someone who has a lot of pride and is a, like just a strong individual even as he's like yeah, I might quit this. He's at the same time like, yeah, I'm still going to be doing my thing. Like even as it's happening, he's in the midst of, you know, extorting Quark, which, you know, Cisco knew immediately, hey man, it's frontier rules out here. I mean, also, if you love what you're doing, is it actually work? <laughs> if you love what you're doing, you'll never work a day in your life. <laughs> like, like he's, he's really out here and it's just they they brought a lot at the same time where like you understand that Cisco is wedded to this moment that is very present and, the, and then you know they obviously we get back to that as the the prophets or the wormhole aliens depending on how you see religion mm-hmm. um, you know as they talk to him and they and they really bring that to the forefront that's already built in um, you know starting from this moment where like. This, like this is a, this is still extremely raw for him um so you understand that brokenness like you said but you also understand that like uh this is not a man to be trifled with you know i mean it's, it's definitely not and i think you know going back to the picard scene uh for a second is that n- you're right no one really talks to picard that way but also picard is usually if someone tries Picard is usually going to try to put a halt to it. Like he's going to like, he's not, he's, he's not necessarily going to step out of line, but he's going to say something. Yeah, he's, but Picard he's not a, a back down type of dude. No, yeah, but Picard no. just sat there and he's like, you know what? Made some points. It's fine. I mean, you know, what am I going to say? Yeah. Like, and that's the thing, um, you know, <laughs> I always thought that that was the, the thing that was like, the deepest wound in Picard, but apparently, mm. um, you know, his mom There's was real deeper. sad. Yeah. According to according to the, the Picard series, that was the thing. It wasn't when it wasn't when he murdered like tens of thousands <laughs> of his of people. It was it was when mommy was really sad and he yeah. was confused and scared as a kid. But you know, whatever. Um, and yeah, he he just kind of was like he didn't have anything to say. Like that was brought up. Like that was a big challenge. Like. Yeah, we met in battle. Like we we both know what what we're talking about right now, and Picard just kind of like sat there. Like he couldn't, he wasn't like quite like backing down in his like body language, but he was yeah. like, 
all right. And he, he ended up just kind of talking about something, you know, moving it along, talking about something else. And I, and I have to imagine, and, and we're going to talk about the concept of grief a little bit later when we, you know, really dig into uh, some of the themes uh, of the episode, but, you know, he is still processing his emotions from that event as well. And, you know, there is, there is a little bit of a hint of grief in Picard's eyes because he has remorse for that situation for being locutus. And it's something that is plaguing him for years and for decades. Um, And, you know, he goes through different stages of grief. You know, there is uh, anger, uh, there's sadness. You know, we see it in uh, the next episode after the best of both worlds on TNG, we see it in first contact. Like it is something that resonates and sticks with him. So, You know, they are both, uh, I'm not both sizing this because it's not necessarily that situation, but you can tell that the actors especially are portraying their different versions of grief and sadness in that scene that those characters are feeling. Uh, So I think that that was very well done. Um, uh, But yeah, I mean, it's not just that Cisco has feelings about his place in in Starfleet and the Federation, if he really, really wants to be doing this thing or not. Um, But when he gets to Deep Space Nine, the station, he's like, this shit's the ghetto. Do I want to be raising my kid here? Like, it is dirty. It is messy. Like, it it is nasty. And they don't have fucking beds here. The replicators don't work. And it's like, he is having this uh, conflict in his mind about like, is this really, really what I want to be doing? Like, they sent me out in who knows nowhere, and they didn't even make me a captain. Like, I'm still a freaking commander. I'm responsible for this entire space station, responsible for establishing relationships with an entire fucking planet, and I'm watching a wormhole, and I'm still just a commander? Do I really want to be doing this? (laughs) Gotta work twice as hard. Yeah. So it is, it's definitely interesting that, you know, his conflict, uh, you know, with the Federation, with Starfleet, isn't just directly with Picard. It's just where he's at in life and where he wants his future to go. Um, And it's interesting, you know, once we get into talking about uh, his relationship to Bajor and everything that comes with it, is, you know, time, the Prophet's not regarding time as linear. Um, He very much was looking at his time as being a linear thing of like this is my future and looking at his future on deep space nine and being like oh i don't know if i want this um and you know it's interesting for him as a character to be more than just in that moment to exist outside of that moment to exist outside of time and i think that there is a certain amount of recognition by the end of the episode where he's like you know what i want to stick around here because you know there's more to my present and there's more to my time here and there's more to my existence than just this individual moment on this individual space station um anyways i'm kind of like yeah no i think that's no i think that makes sense i think also you know you recognize that i don't think it's so much about being in that area and having to raise his kid and like that's what he thinks it is as he's talking but what he figures out that it is is that you know, Starfleet, this uniform, all of this, 
reminds him of his dead wife, you know, and like, right. Can't, yeah. He's not able to move on. And once he's able to disassociate or come to some kind of peace about what happened, all of a sudden he's able to continue on. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So let's get into uh, talking about that, those realizations that hit for him, um, you know, as we're talking about his dynamic um, with Bajor. So, you know, one of the first scenes uh, of him on the space station is uh, the monk that in my notes I had that he looks like a corporate finance guy. Um, the monk that's like, hey, yeah, but he, come like, hang out. On a, you know, he like went out to f- to do some sort of like spiritual retreat. The way that exactly, he's like, yeah, gonna take some wild drugs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So he's like, hey, you know, come hang out with us. And Cisco's like, maybe a later time. And then, uh, then he comes back. It's like, no, it's time. It's time, bitch. Um. So he meets Kyle Paca. Um. I really wish, again, spoilers. But I really wish Kyle Paca stuck around longer because I really enjoyed her as a character. Like, there's definitely more to her character. Like, it definitely seems like she's holding stuff back from herself. Whereas um, Kai Wynn feels much more on the surface, you know, like her intentions, mm-hmm. what her wants and needs are. She's just like, no, no this is me. I'm kind of evil, you know. But Kyle Paca is a little bit more kind of mysterious, <laughs> you know. Um, and so I really enjoyed Kyle Paca. And I think one of the interesting things about uh, Cisco's character, and it's a little moment that Avery Brooks does, and it's very much just how Cisco is as a character throughout the series, is when they're down on Bajor and Kyle Paca like opens up the little well that turns into steps, Cisco just has this look like, okay, cool, I'm in. This sounds like this seems like it's going to be a weird, fun time. Cisco's you know? down. He's Cisco's down, down for a lot of things. He's down for a lot of things, uh, which Jennifer will find out at some point. Um, but yeah, I think that his his relationship to Bajor, his welcoming relationship to Bajor, at times, sometimes not necessarily adversarial, but just like. I don't want this. Like you're saying that I'm your emissary. I don't really want that, which comes later. It is such a foundational uh, dynamic of this show, of this series. And it starts here with his first experience um, with an orb that sends him back into time uh, when he first meets Jennifer. Um, and we we're, we'll spend some time later talking about the, uh, the fashionable swimwear. Um, but hey, swimwear, swimwear aside, that was a moment of black excellence on that beach. It really was. It was just he, some some beautiful people out there. Beautiful people. Um, I'll be honest. Uh, you know, Jennifer was like, "Hey, you're being a little bit forward." Um, but Cisco was like, "Yeah, but I'm also going to marry you." And she's like, "Oh, okay, I'm into it." And you know what? It worked. Cisco, like if Cisco, if every books at that time or whenever was like saying those lines to me while I'm walking down the beach, I might be into it. Like he was in his element. He was in his element. Her abs were in their element. They the were. only thing that was out of the element was the fact that there were clearly no uh, black hairstylists on this show. There never because, um, yeah. you know, 
we got to wait for a couple seasons to get to like ultimate Cisco and, and huh. Avery Brooks unleashed yeah. with the, the bald, the bald head and the goatee. But, um, my man can't get a simple lineup. Like, yeah. how's he? How's he got a zigzag on his on his forehead on his receded like hairline? Come on. Well, man. I mean, he when they were when they were lining him up, he must have done one of those shoulder shimmies that he does in the episode. And like the barber was just like, ah, fuck, I can't do it. Zigzag. Ah! <laughs> they got somebody up from Supercuts to go do his take care of his hair. I don't know what they were doing. A shout out to Discovery for seemingly apparently having one black person in the hair and makeup department. Thank fuck. Um, but yeah, his acting of like, ow! And the shoulder shimmy was very, very strange. Um, but after uh, after his experience with the orb there, uh, he and Dax do a whole like, you know, trying to figure this out. Dax has her experience with the orb. Um, but eventually they get into the wormhole and they have a really big experience at this point and then you know uh uh cisco is basically just in the wormhole for like the rest of the episode pretty much hanging out and chatting with uh with the prophets and you know star trek has brought up religion in uh in different episodes throughout the different series the original series tng the episode the series that came before deep space nine but it was most often treated as uh, an archaic backwards uh, cultural element that has no place in modern day 24th century society. And here you have a show where the religion for Bajorans is so central to the framework and the fabric of the series. It is so central for Kira's relationship with her, with her culture, with her people. Uh, and it's so foundational and central for Cisco as the emissary. So, you know, what did you think as you're watching this show, this episode in the series of like, of a show having a, uh, I guess, respect, uh, you know, for this, you know, made up religion on the show, but kind of treating it as a real and legitimate thing. Yeah, well, first, I think for context, you got to understand that we grew up in a deeply evangelical household. And, you know, at that time, like, the thing about evangelicalism is that you're always like the persecuted underdog, you know, regardless of what the, the facts may be about your influence. And so there was like a really, there was always a big thing about, you know, Hollywood mistreats Christianity and Christians, like, making fun of us or blah 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 and one of the things that i remember being a kid watching this was um like oh they're showing like a different level of respect and Mm -hmm. um interaction with religion than um than most things do and so that was that was like you know the eight ten year old understanding of what was going on and i think that like at times they're more clumsy about it than others you know the the school episode where we get to like you know, evolution versus creationism like whatever um like that ends up being like really tough you know part of it's because mm-hmm. keiko was at the center of it and the, they never figured they never uh wrote that character very well um mm-hmm. and also the actor was always doing like strange making strange choices and she had like a particular energy about her and it was just like ended up being kind of like kind of clunky but 
you know, I think that one of the interesting things that they do is interact with, you know, you have science and you have, you know, people thinking that they understand everything from um, a purely, you know, like physical level and disregarding the metaphysical. And one of the things that I think, especially recently, that people have been discovering is that, you know, hey, some of these like indigenous peoples, you know, weren't just big fucking idiots and actually mm-hmm. understood the way that the world worked in better ways than the quote unquote like enlightened scientific countries that came in um, to to conquer them. And you know, you you see that with you know the ecological relationships that indigenous people had as you know compared to um, the ecological relationships that you know empire has and these supposedly allegedly like smarter um, more technologically advanced countries that come in and end up I don't know like destroying the earth <laughs> and <laughs> making making the place to where it's going to be uninhabitable you know for for millions of people in a short amount of time and like having a level of fundamental respect for the way that other groups of people see things, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's where, you know, to me now, I appreciate that element of it. There's a, there's a level of humility that the show has towards, towards this. And, you know, this is me speaking after I've, you know, sort of left my, my Christianity and certainly like, you mm-hmm. know, burns all of my evangelical bridges with, <laughs> with, with glee, you know what I mean? But, it, but the, also, there's the there's an aspect of kind of a cold, um, prideful, um, you know, mentality that that's also not great. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, it it really was a little bit different, uh, and it also opens up, um, you know, like the showrunners, like the producers were saying at the beginning, it opens up other levels of conflict um, that come about, whether it's, you know, the religious, uh, the, the fundamentalists um, within the Bajoran uh, religion, or if it's uh, other characters and other religions kind of interacting with um, the Bajoran religion and how they, uh, how they perceive it. So there is a lot of opportunity for conflict there. Um, let's get into, uh, the, uh, the discussion with the prophets about, uh, what is time? Uh, and you have, I think it was, uh, Jake, which we haven't talked about yet, but, uh, Jake as Ben Cisco's son, um, Jake as one of the prophets as the prophets, uh, uh, inhabited, uh, bodies and people from Cisco's life and experience. Uh, you have Jake being like, what is time? And Ben just looks at him like, shit, I don't know. Like just straight up, like, I don't know. But it, it felt very much like a, a college uh, a dorm conversation where, you know, you've got some box wine and some clove cigarettes or whatever. And people are just being like, what is time? Exactly. No, it's the, this episode has um, philosophy freshman uh smoking shitty weed and you know like it's 
it's definitely like let's talk about you know quantum physics and you know can you really understand like it's it's uh real real undergrad vibes on this episode it is it totally is but i kind of love it um uh in part because we get to uh towards the end where you know this whole experience this whole journey for uh for cisco in 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 the wormhole is they keep on representing and presenting as jennifer and jennifer's body and throughout and he's very very it's very difficult for him right it's him seeing his wife for the first time in three years and he knows that his wife is dead and he hasn't gotten over that yet um he is still in that moment on that ship where he's seeing jennifer's lifeless body and he is being dragged away um and he is just trying to get to her and you know he has the line of i've never left this ship um i exist here um and it is an interesting representation whether it be first year philosophy or not but it is a interesting representation of um how we process and handle grief uh and trauma by existing in that moment of that grief and that trauma even if linearly uh we have moved past it um and you know all throughout this being the central theme of the episode and the central theme for Cisco specifically, um, there really isn't a Trek series that starts off focusing on such um, intense, deeply personal trauma uh, the way that Deep Space Nine starts off. Like you have Voyager, which uh, they're flung into uh, the Delta Quadrant and they're not going to get home probably while they're alive. At, in terms of what they're assuming and that's definitely traumatic but this is like we start off with his wife dying and he is you know single father throughout and then he has to relive that moment a couple of different times and has to learn how to process his grief and process his trauma um and it's a really heavy uh content uh to start off a a series that trek doesn't usually do yeah, no, it's Star Trek is very triumphal and like, um, you know, it really, really fitting the time, especially next generation, like, um, you know, end of history type stuff, you know, Berlin Wall falls, like we're really, you know, this is it, you know, like we've, we've reached our final frontier type of thing. Whereas this is, this is much smaller and much more internal. Yeah. Absolutely. So let's um, let's kind of get into speaking of trauma and grief. Um, a big focus of this episode is is grief and time. So uh, let's kind of get into it a little bit further. Learning how to live with trauma, not letting the past dictate the future. Um, it is an interesting thing where this show being unique, where you know, as I mentioned earlier, that the producers. Uh, say that this is the difference between a one night stand and a marriage. You have to actually live with your consequences of your actions and your decisions week to week. So this is the first series, the Trek's first Trek series that is actually living with that trauma, living with that grief and learning how to, uh, to wrestle with it, how to um, resolve it internally and how to move on. So, you know, from the standpoint of it being a series and doing something differently and then how this show 
actually manages to do it through this episode and then kind of uh, continuing on, you know, what, how do you feel like this episode handled these concepts? Yeah. I mean, this episode, again, we're, we're a couple 19 year olds smoking mid, you know, but they're, they're talking the, when, when Cisco's trying to explain the way that time works, he's mm-hmm. like, there's a past that those are things that, that happened. And then something new happens and that's the mm-hmm. present. And then something else will happen. And that's the future. Right. So it's like time's moving on a linear line. They call him out and they're like, well, if that's the case, then why is this grief with you? Like you're living yeah. in this moment from the past, which means that the past isn't actually the past. The past is your present right now. Um, so instead of it being a line, it's more like a circle or it's, you know, like where it's like, you know, collapsed in on itself. And that's the thing that he ends up having to, having to figure out, you know, that's why he ends up saying, because he's able to put that moment in the past. And it's kind of funny because he puts that moment in the past here in this episode and it stays in the past because they, they barely refer to it ever again in seven Mm -hmm. seasons. You know, like he really does just excise that moment from himself in, at this time. You know, like we even um, see the Jennifer character come up again mm-hmm. um, in different ways. And he has to interact with, with her and, you know, it's still something that's real, but it's not something that is, um, is controlling his life in his day-to-day emotions and decisions the way that it is in this moment. And, um, you know, for him, and this is the, you know, psychoanalyst hat that, that they're putting on him right now is that, you know, he's been living in this room, but not wanting to like really acknowledge that he's living in this room. Um, so he's still there in the fire looking at his hopefully dead wife. So hopefully he didn't leave her there while she was alive it flatlined the the tricorder it had a steady tone as the closed captions referred to it as hey i've seen them bring people back that's all i'm saying i've seen them bring people back from all kinds of situations you know uh, they left you know i mean i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure the final explosion that tore that ship apart did that 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 no, 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 no no she she did I'm just saying when he left her, she may or may oh, not yeah. have been dead. And I'm hoping for his sake, like, I'm sure that he thinks she was dead. Like he has to like rationally believe yeah. that. But there's a part of him that, you know, probably can't forgive himself from, Oh, for sure. From leaving her there. And then the, the prophets returning him back to that moment and back to that place allowed him to like, you know, go through steps of grief that he hadn't gone through yet. And he was able to accept it in a way that allowed him to continue moving forward rather than being stuck in the past. Right. And it's not just that, you know, he was in that room, he exists in that room. And it's not just that he was wanting to ignore what was in the room. He wasn't wanting to leave the room yet. You know, he wasn't ready to leave the room, you know, ready to, um, essentially put you know his grief and his feelings about the situation behind him 
you know, he wasn't ready to, to do that yet. And he wasn't ready to move on from his wife, you know, like no. it was too raw. Yeah. He loved her too much. It hurt too much. And um, there's a thing about pain and grief where sometimes it becomes something that we're afraid to leave behind mm-hmm. for any number of reasons. And we end up holding on to trauma in a way that's not necessarily beneficial to ourselves but we're just too afraid to to let it go. Yeah, and you know, his, trauma becomes comfortable or yeah. familiar or whatever. And in his case, it was worrying about leaving a part of himself and a part of someone else behind. Uh, and he was having a hard time doing that. You know, he didn't want to leave his wife behind. He didn't want. I don't. You know, he didn't want to leave who he was as a person who existed in that moment um, up until the time that she died, you know, he didn't want to leave that behind and he didn't want to recognize that, um, that he had to, to walk away and move on. Um, So yeah, it is definitely an interesting way and a unique way to open up a Star Trek series. Um, uh, by doing our, you know, philosophy 101 moments um, about grief and trauma. And, uh, you know, especially a show like Deep Space Nine, uh, they definitely need a lot. And they do uh, a lot of time spent talking about grief and trauma because uh, it happens quite a bit on the show. Yeah. All right. So uh, let's get into the rapid fire section, Uh, starting off with a little bit of trivia. Um, uh, David Carson, the director of the pilot of DS9, uh, his work on the pilot uh, impressed Paramount and it led to him getting uh, the director job for Star Trek Generations. Uh, John Noah Hertzler, uh, who was the Vulcan captain in the beginning, uh, later is uh, billed as J.G. Hertzler, and uh, DS9 fans will know him as Martok, uh, the Klingon uh, Martok. Um, uh, appearances, it is a new visual appearance for Trill, um, uh, for the Trill, because the producers saw Terry Farrell and in prosthetics, and they're like, take a little bit off, take a little bit more off take all of it off because we want to see all of her face uh and not just like (laughs) behind prosthetics um and then uh quirk looks a little bit different in this episode than he does throughout the rest of the series uh in part because the nose that the prosthetic nose that he was wearing was actually the nose for rom instead because his own prosthetic wasn't ready yet so uh i just thought that was kind of funny like just you couldn't have waited a couple more days to finish their prosthetic. Hey, when that thing's ready to go, it's ready to go. I'd also like to say that Odo looks like what's left in the Kleenex after like day two of the flu. He looks rough. He looks, he looks really, awful. really rough. Yeah. And the, the uniform that he has is also really bad. They, they fixed that. Yeah. The fit wasn't right. The, the fit was bad, but also the colors like, Yes. It was one one tone rather than the two tone that he had. And yeah. the one tone was the wrong tone. Mm-hmm. I think also I definitely this is my least favorite, probably least favorite version of Kira's uniform as well. Um it just doesn't it doesn't set right for me. It just doesn't look right. Um it, it doesn't, but um Betsy, my wife, that's her the a little undershirt that she has. It's like 
Love that's it. his favorite favorite thing in Star Trek. Like absolutely the best. Yeah, absolutely the best. Uh, there's a few different episodes like here is just like in that uh, in that uh, uh, wardrobe uh, that she was when she was cleaning up uh, on the promenade, and mm-hmm. she's just in the pants and that shirt. We yeah. love it. Absolutely. And the, the pants best. have that that thick bands, like you know, mm-hmm. high waisted thick band. Yeah, it's a good look. It's a great look. It's a great look um some stray thoughts uh the enterprise sets um it definitely looks like they shot them uh both on the bridge and the observation lounge with different angles and lighting um you know the bridge on uh the enterprise looks a little bit darker um more how it's lit on generations which makes sense because it's the same director um and then the angles that they use in the observation lounge are a little bit different so it's kind of nice getting a different look a different variation on the familiar with uh, what we're used to seeing on tng right um so that was kind of fun um uh, it was funny um when they get on there like first off o'brien uh just pressed a button to beam you somewhere and he's about to become like a geordie level engineering genius yeah which like he leveled up you know good for him i guess he leveled up but he took he took the Bashir serum or whatever before he took this assignment (laughs) but um Mm. I it was I remember as a kid watching this episode and being like what the fuck when when O'Brien goes on the bridge and he looks at the bridge and I'm like man there's nobody on this bridge I've ever seen him before in my life (laughs) seriously not even like the regular helmsman that they have (laughs) no name helmsman like what time is it is it like is it like 3 30 a.m this is like the shift that we've never seen before it's the fourth rotation it's the fourth shift that it's the fourth uh, Jellico shift. wanted to do wild yeah wild who are these people man don't you know like give me give me Riker like or like, yeah like even give me a helmsman that I've seen before come on yeah so to uh to carry on that theme uh talking about our trouble quibbles I don't know why but when O'Brien was like, oh, I got to go back to the Enterprise for some shit. Let me put on my old uniform so I don't look strange on, on the bridge. Like, why was that necessary? Just like, well, I'm just going to change the uniform for today. I'm just going to change it up and just go back to the old TNG style. Um, he still had that one fitted, you know? Well, speaking, was, of, yeah. uh, speaking of uniforms that were not fitted well, when they had uh, Terry Farrell on for DS9, they're like, yeah, you're going to be in that TNG uniform for like two seconds so we're not going to worry about having it fit you like it did not look like that fit for at all it didn't look like it fit um her regular uniform either when she mm-hmm. when they when her and cisco were in the runabout and they end up go like landing you know uh-huh. in the uh like she when she sees the idyllic little um mm-hmm. you know like picnic Garden. area yeah she starts walking out her arms are flopping by her side first off, <laughs> she walks like a real weirdo but secondly, she looks like like an eleven year old boy wearing like his like eighteen year old brother's clothes. Uh huh. It just like listen. What are we doing? The you know uh, wardrobe department. Y'all did great on the series, and y'all improved very well uh, in the subsequent episodes uh, after the season premiere. So uh, shout out to you. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, another triple quibble that I had was when he was on the Saratoga, 
I don't know what position that he is on the ship because he was handing out orders like he's the first officer, but he's a lieutenant commander. And I suppose that lieutenant commanders can be first officers, but it just seemed weird that as a lieutenant commander, he was just handing out off, handing out orders like he was fucking running the ship, like he was fucking Riker or whatever. Like, anyways, like, like I was saying, this black man got to work twice as hard, yeah, for, for one rank below what he's supposed to be. He is a commander out on the space station trying to bring, you know, this whole new alien race into the Federation, defending, like, you know, both Federation and Bajoran interests. And they're like, yeah, no, you're good. You could stay a commander. It's like, what? You know, like, like they, they're just not going to give that promotion until he, like, absolutely forces them to. Yeah, they're like, hey, I just... He, he was like, I just brought this shit back that I was working on at the Utopia Planitia Yards, and it's a board killer. Can I be captain now? I'm like, okay, fine, I guess. Wild. Oh, well. Um, okay, my last trouble quibble is, again, being nerdy as hell, this is my uh, nerd out moment, is that on a Starfleet ship, when you say red alert, it automatically raises the shields. But Kira was like, hey, red alert, raise the shields. And I understand that narratively, it was specifically for O'Brien to turn where it'd be like shields. We don't have shields. But if you're saying a red alert, it should automatically raise the shields. Now, you may ask, well, but that's on a Starfleet ship, not a Cardassian space station. True. But do we really think that all of the species around the universe all use red alert and yellow alert universally, but they don't have the same protocol when red alert and yellow alert is called. I don't understand it. I understand narratively, but I don't understand it. But I mean, to be fair, when has Star Trek ever been consistent with anything? I'm looking for a trash can to stuff you in right now. Is there a locker that's open? <laughs> Do you want me to go into the bathroom and dunk my own head into the toilet? Please, my okay. God. I'll do that when we stop recording. Um, speaking of things that happened in the 90s, like swirlies, uh, oof, the 90s. Uh, Kira's hair, not a fan. Already talked about it. Um, it was just a copy of Ro Laren's, but it just didn't work for Nana Visitor. And again, her subsequent haircuts, much better. Uh, swimwear, uh, Jennifer's was generally fine. I kind of like dug the, like, almost in a way Afrofuturistic uh, swimwear for Cisco, <laughs> for Ben, but it still was very much the 90s. Um, you know, but that being said, like the little open uh, sleeveless shirt thing, that seems comfy. Hey, they, uh, you know, however it looked, they rocked it. And especially Jennifer just walking out through the fire, uh, alien Jennifer walking out through the fire uh, with her swimsuit on, like that was... That was a moment. Um, uh, good look, bad look. Um, uh, we have the not Golder Cot. We didn't even talk about Golder Cot, but we'll have time to talk about him in uh, in other that. episodes. Um, the the second goal that showed up, his acting was a little bit rough. Um, speaking of rough, rough acting, uh, you have Cisco's help me or whatever it was and then when he's getting dragged off the ship they showed that clip twice i know they didn't need to they did him dirty <laughs> they really did they did they did him dirty uh and then odo's uh odo's look i think we did we talk about that already yeah i, I okay. said he looks like snot okay <laughs> uh and then the uh blue collar working class moment was uh <laughs> kira 
telling or Kira saying to Cisco, like, what does Starfleet not get their hands dirty? And Cisco looks around, but like he's absolutely surrounded by debris, but he looks around for like 10 minutes to try to find one single piece of debris and then picks it up and moves it. And then he shows her his hands, like, I get dirty. I did not mean to sound it, say it like that. (laughs) For real. (laughs) Anyways, I am going to back out of that as quickly as I can. Um, Anything else that you would like to mention or add? Uh, No, not really. It was funny um, seeing Huckleberry Jake up there, like with the fishing pole and the pants rolled (laughs) up. Uh Like, all right. Or, or Huckleberry Finn's friend. Yeah. Who, uh, who we, Nog. We, uh, no, Huckleberry, Huckleberry Finn's friend. Who, oh, uh, I see what you mean. <clears throat> I, who he yes. said was a, mm. but um, mm-hmm. yeah, so there was that. That goal's acting was so god awful, as you said. Um, you know, I, I always am wondering <laughs> about, the uh, civilians on Starfleet ships. Oh, for sure. How smart that is. Yeah. Because uh, you might have to go fight the Borg and like clearly die. And then there's just <laughs> like, there's just like botanists and like bartenders on the ship. Like, yo, what's up? Why are we dying? Why am I dying right now? Right. Jennifer was just looking for lemonade and she's dead. Yeah. You know, tough times. It is. It's, uh, it's, don't bring your times. family on one of those ships. Just come back, you know, do your tour and come back home. Yeah, and it was it was uh, I saw some notes that it was uh, out of character to show a um, a starship like a Miranda class ship as having civilians and family aboard. Like that's something that was more for galaxy class ships, um, you know, like the Enterprise. So it was a little bit different. But um, one last thing before we close out, uh, I mean, there's so much more that. Uh, you know, we'll get into in other episodes talking about the design of the station, so on and so forth, the design of the runabouts. Um, we'll talk about that during our runabout uh, explosion counter. Um, but uh, just kind of to close out, one of the last um, scenes in the episode is when uh, Cisco gets back on the station and, you know, he sees his son kind of wandering around through the crowd and he just like shouts, Jake and like just that super happy look on his face and um you know the relationship and the depiction of the relationship uh between Ben and his son Jake is one of the best pairings of the series and it's one of the best through lines of the show um and it's really nice to see that from the beginning in the first episode you know yeah you know i've got a com- i've got complicated feelings about their relationship um, so they were definitely going for like, look, it's a, this is a good black father you for know? sure. as if, um, you know, he they did that. He didn't leave home. He stayed they, with a the kid. They did that at the time as if like, um, you know, men not being shit was somehow like racially dependent, but yeah. you know, like there's all the tropes about, you know, black fathers abandoning their families right. and blah, blah. And so this is coming on the heels of you know the the like other depictions of black families on television um you know most famously the cosby show Mm. and um you know having sort of the bourgeois like black family look they're 
they could, you know, there could be doctors and whatever and look just like you and do the things that you do and be normal and stuff. And so like, there's, there's an aspect, like the relationship feels so genuine um, that, yeah, like you're watching and you're like, this is great. And especially, you know, at that time, um, I'm probably around the same age as the actor for Jake. Maybe he's a couple years older than me, possibly. But um, it was definitely someone like, oh, I, I identify with this kid. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's just a little complicated. We'll probably mm-hmm. get into that more as uh, the podcast moves forward. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's a good place to stop. Um, so it is time for us to release docking clamps and pilot our tough little ship away from Tarek Noir. If you want to reach out to us with comments or questions, hit us up on Twitter. Our profile there is Tarek Noir, or send us an email at TarekNoirPod at gmail.com. Thank you all for listening. We hope you join us for our next episode. And until then, walk with the prophets, child.